Welcome to the third episode of my new podcast series, Financial Crime Matters. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst for ACAMS, world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. And this series addresses hot topics and features people who are making a difference in the fight against financial crime. In this podcast, I talk with John Smith, who up until last year was director of the Office of Foreign Asset Control, having served more than 11 years with OFAC. What follows is a look at the theory and practice of sanctions from a man who served four presidents, now co-head of national security practice at DC law firm Morrison Forsters. It's particularly timely to do this interview with John because of how complicated the world of sanctions has become with the rise of more and more sanctions designations, not only by the US, but by Europe and the United Nations and others. John is able to put the whole sanctions world into a historic perspective while addressing current issues. And it's in fact this complexity that has entered the sanctions world and is a challenge to sanctions professionals that's caused ACAMS to begin to roll out a professional certification akin to the CAM certification called the Certified Global Sanctions Certification, or CGSS. Enjoy my chat with John Smith. Here we go. Thank you, John, for agreeing to chat with me. Thank you. I'm enjoying talking about OFAC. Well, that's where I'm going to start. What's kind of the thumbnail history so that people understand the purpose, uh, the creation, and the origin of OFAC? Good question. And for those who do not follow OFAC or economic sanctions, I think the agency has been called the most powerful agency you've never heard of. OFAC was created in the early years of World War II before the U.S. involvement when Nazi Germany invaded Denmark and Norway on April 9, 1940. The next day, President Roosevelt declared a national emergency, issued an executive order, and asked the Treasury Department to freeze the assets of Denmark and Norway. The fear was that the Nazis would get the gold and other assets of Denmark and Norway that were located in the United States, and that they would be able to use those assets to fuel their war effort. So the Treasury Department created what was then called the Foreign Fund Control, or the Control, as it was informally known. And the Control's mission was to handle the implementation of large country asset freezes and economic sanctions. OFAC has existed through every crisis that the United States has faced since that time, the Cuban Missile Crisis and South African apartheid through September 11th and the Twin Towers falling, Arab Spring and the current crises involving Iran, Russia, and Syria. So how has it evolved? It seems to me that it is a much more complicated organization, and one could say arguably it may get more complicated with each passing year. Terrific question. In some senses, the powers and mission of OFAC have evolved in a broadening way and some in a narrowing way, and I can explain that. In the early years of economic sanctions, probably in the early decades, sanctions were generally imposed on an entire country. You would have an embargo on the country like Cuba. You would basically not allow most trade between the United States and that other jurisdiction. You'd stop all financial flows. And even in the case of Cuba, you'd stop travel. 
Now, that began to change in the 90s when there was the concern that cutting off whole countries would have untoward humanitarian consequences. That you'd really be hurting the people of a country by cutting off food and medicine and medical products, and that you really should be targeting the bad actors within the country. And so the biggest evolution of sanctions was the move from whole countrywide embargoes to the idea of targeted or smart sanctions, where you actually imposed asset freezes and other restrictions on the individuals and entities that were actually doing the bad acts. That's probably the biggest change, but the rules have also become increasingly complex. There had been, for most of the period of economic sanctions, U.S. rules focused on U.S. citizens and permanent residents, and U.S. companies were the ones that had to follow U.S. law. In recent years, there's been the creation of what are called secondary sanctions with respect to certain high-profile programs such as Iran, Russia, and North Korea, where not only does the U.S. government mandate that U.S. persons and U.S. companies follow U.S. rules, but they also threaten non-U.S. companies, non-U.S. persons for activity completely outside the United States and say, in the case of certain transactions involving Iran, Russia, and North Korea, you, European, Asian, or other company, if you deal in certain transactions, then the United States may sanction you and cut you off from business with the United States. So those are the biggest evolutions that we've seen in sanctions. Can you talk about this universe of sanctions lists? The granddaddy of all the lists called the SDN list, the Specially Designated Nationals and Block Persons list, and that generally means that if you're an individual or entity and your name is put on those lists, then U.S. persons have to freeze the assets of those individuals or entities and U.S. persons aren't allowed to deal with those in the future. Most of that occurs through the banking sector, insurance companies, securities companies, but also residential real estate and others have to check immediately when there are updates to sanctions lists, and they actually have to look to make sure that they freeze the assets immediately and that no further transactions go through. But even though the obligation falls a lot on the financial sector and private companies to implement the rules, they apply to everyone who is a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident or a company that's located in the United States. Now, the other lists that have been created are generally created for specific purposes. There are lists for foreign sanctions evaders involving Iran and Syria, where if you're added to that list, there's something less than the full blocking sanctions. Treasury has a list for secondary sanctions put out years ago. It was the Part 561 list following the section of the regulations that the list was named after, and that was what was just modified. So it's not just dealing with Iran, but it's generally dealing with all secondary sanctions so that there's more of a one-stop shop for those lists. There's also a list that the Commerce Department would maintain with respect to certain controlled goods or entities that aren't allowed to have full access to the United States and U.S. marketplace. And then there are a few State Department lists that have been created to implement sanctions. So it is very difficult for companies to comply there is a consolidated screening list, I believe is maintained on the Commerce Department website that also tries to capture a number of the U.S. government lists. But these days, generally it's done by vendors that companies use just to make it easy on their lives. 
I think there has always been a little bit of a debate over the efficacy of sanctions. And I remember actually, well, I'm going to date myself here, I'm sitting in, in a class at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And I remember a very compelling case that sanctions were not effective and this was not a good tool for foreign policy. And yet there is still a debate back and forth about their efficacy. What do you think? I think that's right. There is a debate, and the debate is valid because sanctions don't always achieve a change in behavior. And I think part of the question has to be, what are you trying to achieve? In the Cuba case, for example, the United States has had sanctions since, I think, 1961 on the government of Cuba. And the government of Cuba remains the same non-democratic government that the United States protested back at that time. As I was growing up, South African apartheid sanctions were very, very important for students and a lot of folks around the country who felt like it was important to send the message. And there were countries around the world that joined in, and for many years it was unsuccessful. The government didn't change. Apartheid continued, and so there was a concern even back in that day that sanctions weren't effective. But at the end of the day, the sanctions became effective, and they helped persuade the government of South Africa to change its policies. Sanctions have achieved their objectives in many other cases, such as Burma, where sanctions help change the military government's behavior and allow some democracy into the country. And the United States, along with the other permanent members of the Security Council, the European Union and Germany, helped convince Iran to negotiate over its nuclear program. Again, that's now called into question with the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran deal. But there was no question that sanctions achieved the objective of getting Iran to the negotiating table. There has been an evolution in how we apply sanctions and what the sanctions look like. When do sanctions work well and when do they not work well? Sanctions are most effective when they're multilateral, when you get a number of governments to go in together. The Iran sanctions were not only by the U.S., they were also joined in by the European Union. The United Nations mandated sanctions apply across the world. It may explain why Cuba sanctions were viewed as less effective because no other country joined the United States. And in fact, many countries around the world continue to protest the U.S. blockade. And so sanctions are undoubtedly the most effective when they they are joined in by a number of countries. The other aspect of sanctions that make them most effective is when you have a clear objective. When you have something that you want to achieve, you spell this out to the other party, and then you can say, if you change behavior, we'll lift them and we can move on. Those are the cases where you see the most effective use of sanctions. And it seems to me that sanctions can be kind of overused and you can have maybe too many sanctions regimes. You're echoing a comment that former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew made in a very public speech a few years ago that warned against the dangers of overuse of sanctions. He said to use them when there are clear objectives, when there is something that you want to achieve, when other countries will join in and you can have a clear international campaign. The concern about some of the current uses of sanctions involve the idea of the U.S. going it alone on, for example, pulling out of the Iran deal, forcing sanctions on the rest of the world over Russia, where many other countries oppose the U.S. tool. And in fact, many of our closest allies in, for example, in the European Union are looking to circumvent the U.S. sanctions. It's not a good use of our diplomatic efforts to be fighting with our closest allies when we are trying to impose our sanctions. You've served under, I think, at least 
three administrations. How do you characterize how differently sanctions were used across the Bush years, the Obama years, and now the Trump years? As you said, three administrations. Actually, I made it through four. I started Uh. in the Clinton administration, and I was at the Justice Department at that time. I think one clear difference is that every administration has continued to use them more. While Clinton began some of the targeted sanctions programs back in 1995 involving terrorism and narcotics trafficking, they weren't very often used. There weren't that many sanctions additions. Certainly after September 11th and the Bush years, sanctions were used far more often against global terrorists and also the Iraq war involving the government of Iraq at the time. There was also the Iran program, which culminated in the Bush and the Obama years of really toughening sanctions against Iran. And then you continue to see the spike up in sanctions and the Trump administration kind of across the board, their increased use. Probably the biggest difference I'd see with current administration is much more of a willingness to utilize sanctions, even over the objections of other countries, the use of sanctions in Iran and Russia in ways that Europe and other close allies do not support. That's the biggest difference, I think, with the current administration. To be clear, in the past, sanctions were used in ways that other countries didn't support, even our closest allies, but there was generally much more of a discussion, diplomatic efforts to try to bring the other countries on board. And while there is still diplomacy going on, there's much more of an indication now that on certain issues, Iran, Russia, North Korea, the United States expects those other countries to go along with us and their companies under threat of penalty if they do not. Often there's a little bit of a battle between Congress and the president over sanctions policy. What's the proper role for Congress in terms of signing on for sanctions or creating new sanctions that are independent of the president's effort? That's probably the most difficult question that you'll ask today because I don't know that there really is a proper role. Congress has been increasingly flexing its muscles when it comes to sanctions in recent years, largely because it disagreed with successive administrations It's nothing new. If you go back to the Clinton era, Congress imposed sanctions on Cuba via statute that many in the administration did not support, although the president ultimately signed legislation that continued in the Bush years, but less so because there was rallying around the troops and the flag in the aftermath of the September 11th crisis. And there was certainly much deference given to the executive branches handling sanctions matters during that time. But sanctions legislation really picked up steam during the Obama years as the president began to consider negotiating with Iran. Many in Congress opposed that effort and began to impose secondary sanctions on other countries via statute. Those are the sanctions that affect non-U.S. persons outside the United States, where you're basically telling other countries to follow the U.S. Those turned out to be some of the most powerful sanctions. They got other countries to join with us. At the time, they were viewed as somewhat special. We can do this in the case of Iran because there were successive U.N. Security Council resolutions targeting Iran's nuclear program. And so the idea that the United States would want to go above and beyond those, it was still in support of those common 
themes. So the Congress really picked up steam in doing that in the end years of the Obama administration as the president considered the nuclear deal. And even before the nuclear deal, there was concern that the administration wasn't being tough enough with respect to Iran. And the most recent use of congressional authorities was legislation known as CATSA that passed a few years ago that basically mandated some of the toughest sanctions ever on Russia. And it was particularly striking because you had the legislation passed by a Republican House and a Republican Senate to compel a Republican administration to act tougher against Russia. And that was somewhat striking because generally you had more of a partisan flavor when Congress felt the need to act in the past. And here you had the Republicans in Congress determining that the Republican administration needed to do more. In terms of what the proper role, though, is, both Congress and the president have constitutional authorities that deal with either foreign policy or the power of the purse, and they each have a long-established role in this area, and I think that will likely continue. What's most important, I think, for Congress to do, though, and give the administration some flexibility is the ability to evolve with circumstances on the ground. You've got to give the administration flexibility so that if circumstances change in Russia or Iran or Syria or elsewhere, that you don't lock in a president and hamstring their ability to negotiate as circumstances change. Unfortunately, there's such distrust on the Russia issue in particular, Congress seems unwilling to give the administration much flexibility. You now are in a different role. You're obviously advising financial institutions, industry about sanctions. And two parts to this question, has your perspective on sanctions and how they're administered changed at all? And what are you seeing as the big challenges for private industry and financial institutions and the challenges going forward? What are you advising them? Good questions. And I would say, has my perspective changed? Probably not. I still have the same view on the use of sanctions as I had before. I have much more detailed knowledge of the pain of financial institutions and global companies that sanctions bring. I knew that from my years at OFAC because those companies came in to talk with us regularly about the impacts the sanctions were having, but this is much more of behind-the-scenes look these days. In terms of the big challenges ahead, I think it's the complexity of the sanctions rules. There have been so many new rules put out that are far-reaching that sometimes are vague. The language of congressional statutes are not always clear for the private sector or even OFAC to interpret and implement. Trying to do the right thing in a complex legal environment where businesses operate for the business of making money and they want to turn a profit. And I often have to tell them that what they may want to do is legal, but there may be some potential risk down the line with new sanctions that may be coming or that what they want to do, it's unclear whether it's legal or not because there haven't been precise rules given and you're dealing more with broad terminology in a sanctions program that may not be defined to your particular circumstance. I think the challenges for companies are the risk that they take of violating the law. Companies are very loath to do, obviously, and that would be our advice. But in many cases, 
it's unclear the future risk that they may face. What is Congress going to do next on sanctions? And will the deals that they want to do today, will those deals be forbidden in the future and the companies required to back out of them? So using a crystal ball to tell companies what to expect in the future, probably some of the biggest areas of challenge. John Smith, I just want to thank you for taking this time to talk with me. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it myself. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you liked this podcast and want to hear more about what's important in fighting financial crime, be sure to subscribe to Financial Crime Matters with me, Kieran Beer, on SoundCloud or through iTunes. See you all next month.